Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com don't touch that dial you're tuned in to the dread podcast network from nice guy productions world headquarters overlooking the glamorous san fernando valley i'm mick garris and this is the fun size edition of postmortem ama where you can ask me anything. And asking your questions on your behalf uh, is our producer, Joe Russo. Joe, how are you? I am well, Mick. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. It was nice and quiet. Yes, thank you. Good, good. And I hope you uh, Mine was crazy, you know, hosting my parents, but uh, crazy and fun in a good way. Well, um, yeah, I just wanted to make a, a quick note and say, um, you know, this episode is out on Wednesday, which means this past Sunday was our engineer Chris Price's birthday. Happy birthday to him. Happy birthday, and, Chris. Uh, and, and this coming Saturday, happy Don't birthday to it. Nick Harris. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. <laughs> You're welcome, Nick. <laughs> we couldn't let that go by. I do it every year. And I yeah, we could have, but that's yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they all know anyway. It's all on Wikipedia and whatnot. So uh, anyway. Yeah, everybody looks me up on Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I think so. that's that's where I go to for my uh, Nick Garris information. All right. <laughs> Shall we dive in? Let's dive. All right. Uh, as a bit of follow-up to our last episode, Jeff asks, Mick, in your discussion about the new WGA credits, you mentioned big films you wrote on that you weren't credited for. What are some of those movies? Well, there weren't a bunch of them that I worked on because fortunately I was the first writer on almost all of the movies that I was a screenwriter for hire on. And the first writer normally has a better chance of getting representation and credit because that's where the foundation lay. Um, and of course, a lot of the movies I've written for the studios and the like have not been made, as is the case with virtually every working screenwriter. The one notable exception was a movie called Bad Company, which was, again, I was the first writer on it. And originally it was for Eddie Murphy. And I'm not particularly known as a comedy writer in that field, but uh, they said, you know, you write the script and Eddie will put it in the funny. So not exactly the best grounding for writing a screenplay. <laughs> sure. I do have a sense of humor and I, I occasionally write humor into my films and books and the like. But um, I wrote a few drafts for Paramount 
And over the years, it changed completely. After Eddie uh, pulled out to do some other projects, it changed completely. It became a movie called Bad Company with Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. Oh, wow. And it doesn't resemble what I wrote very much at all. So it was fair not to have that credit, even though I was the first writer on it. It evolved so completely. But that's a movie... And I hate to admit it, I've never seen the film. <laughs> uh, it, it was not much of a success um, and doesn't seem to be remembered fondly or otherwise um, from that era. But uh, that that's one studio example that I can give you. There you go. Uh, you know, I was wondering, actually, just thinking about this as you were talking, um, you know, Critters 2, I remember you you came in and did a director polish on top of the existing script by David Toohey. Um, yeah, it was more than a director polish. It was something that uh, New Line wanted um, some issues addressed, and David Toohey chose not to. And so, right. as well as being a director polish, it was it, we reworked a lot of stuff and put a lot more comedy into it. Speaking of writing comedy, I was wondering if you know, because it was it was you guys specifically on that movie. Was there much of a an arbitration process on it, or or how did how did that kind of go about? Um, when there's more than one writer on a movie, there is an automatic arbitration process. Mm -hmm. So. Um, nobody, if there is any contention about what the studio is offering as the credit, Tui and I were both happy with, uh, with the way the credit read, which was, uh, written by David Tui and Mick Garris. So, uh, especially because it was a sequel to another movie that somebody else had come up with a lot sure. of these characters and situations. Well, good. There you go. So now not, not as, uh, as much contention there. So that's great. That's good. Right. To um, it's nice. It's nice when that happens as opposed to, it can be the opposite sometimes. I've uh, been through those too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's dive into, uh, the, the, the new questions. Um, Steven asks Mick on a scale of nerd to mega nerd, how insufferable a nerd is producer Joe? <laughs> oh man. Is there something higher than mega nerd? <laughs> Actually, Joe keeps his nerdishness uh, quite close to the vest. Uh, he's a total pro. Uh, he only he gets nerdy more with our engineer Chris, both of them being gamers and nerds extraordinaire. But uh, you know, he knows how to be socially acceptable uh, in uh, in public. So. <laughs> he's very well behaved <laughs> and keeps that nerdishness in check. But when it runs free, look out. That's, that's, I think that is a very fair assessment. Thank you, Mick. <laughs> uh, all right. Aurelio asks, do you surf? Um, I don't, but my brother, my older brother, George, was a, a big surfer his whole life. And that was something that, that I never did. In fact, um, he had a fatal heart attack while surfing. Whoa. So uh, I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he was surfing. He was 58 years old and uh, something that he did with his, his family often. And he had a heart attack while surfing and went under. And fortunately, there were EMTs surfing right near him and they revived him, but not out of a coma. They revived his heartbeat. 
but he was in a coma for eight days before he passed away. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sorry to bring down the mood. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, if he loved doing it, at least he was doing something he loved. Yeah. It uh, was, it was a very happy experience with him and his kids. Yeah. 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 Uh, gosh. And uh, that also just makes me think like, you, you weren't wrong when you were saying the heart attack was probably genes related more than anything else. It's uh, definitely the case. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, hopefully on a more happy note, uh, Claire asks, if you could watch only one movie for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'd cut my wrists. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's one movie uh, that I could watch every night. Um, <laughs> The two movies, well, one of the movies I, I would have mentioned is in an upcoming question that I, I glanced at. So there are two movies I've seen more than any other, but one of them that I could watch over and over and over is The Beatles' Hard Day's Night. Oh. And, and come to think of it, Poltergeist is a movie that, you know, you don't necessarily think of it in your top five movies, but it's a movie that if I see it, if it comes on, I sit down and watch it and watch it all the way to the end. It is yeah. so rewatchable over and over and over. It never loses its energy. There are a bunch of movies like that, but God, I would hate to live in a world that only had one movie in it. <laughs> there you have it. Um, the Majestic Dead asks, what's a movie you love purely for nostalgia? Okay, that's the question I got a peek at. Um, uh Look, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is a very difficult movie to beat in terms of nostalgia factor. I watched it endlessly as a kid, and I definitely get the warm, creepy fuzzies when I see it anytime. It's funny. They play the monsters straight, um, and it's just so deeply ingrained in my childhood psyche that it's hard to remove it from my adult one. And why would I want to? I don't blame you. I was a movie that my dad showed me at an early age because he watched it, you know, over and over and over and, uh, you know, continues to be one that I watch over and over and over. So, so it's, good. It's, it's a, so. it's a, it is a genuine classic. Truly. Justin asks any advice you'd give a novice filmmaker that's starting at a later age in life. Well, I don't see how there could be different advice for a, an older filmmaker than a younger filmmaker um you know matter of film school if that's the route you choose that's certainly a good one to learn um the tools and mechanics of making a movie um but i think in all ways the way that i was able to enter into making films was through writing um not all directors are writers and not all writers are directors they are entirely different disciplines, but you can write. It costs you nothing but time and energy and creativity and imagination. Um, and you can show the fruits of your labor without having to settle for actors who might just be friends of yours. You know, you can't afford to pay actors and put them on film, uh, you know, without having the best directors of photography and uh, production designers go through all of that time, expense, and hard work. You can show your ability as a screenwriter by just handing over your digital file. Um, and so I came at directing through writing and it, it 
worked as a great channel for me. Joe, I know that was uh, your route as well. Um, but I don't think it has anything to do with age. Uh, there are wonderkints who are doing it like Steven Spielberg directing Joan Crawford in Night Gallery when he was 21 years old. I was 33 before I got my first screenwriting offer from the Spielberg camp. So uh, it can come from any number of directions, but it has no nothing to do with your age. I agree. I mean, I do think that if you're trying to break into the executive side of things, um, it helps to be in your 20s and get assistant positions. Oh, yeah. um, and that can be a great way to make contacts and, and spiderweb your career out from there. Which but, you did. Yeah. Which is what I did. Yeah. Which is what I did. And then, and then, you know, quietly writing in the background. And then eventually, you know, those, those two things kind of met in the middle. Um, but uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think you can go make a good short film or, or go write a good screenplay at any age and, you know, cream rises to the top. Well, and that's the other important uh, point to make is that agents are, uh, can be your best friend or your worst enemy. If you have material, you can't get to producer on your own unless you have a, an extraordinary window open up to you. But that's what an agent's job is. And so writing or filming material that will impress an agent to the point where he thinks he can make, he or she can make money off of you, that's the primary route to getting into the industry. And the best way to do that is to put a great piece of material in front of them. Exactly. Yep. All right. Jacob asks, I was wondering about happy accidents. Have you ever experienced something that wasn't planned on set, but led to a positive outcome for your movie? Usually that came in the form of weather. Um, you know, if, if you're someone who shot lists every scene, you, you sometimes feel handcuffed to your shot list and, and it's the chicken and the egg. You're, you're wrestling with the chicken before the egg has hatched. Um, but if you're open to change, you know, during the course of the stand, we shot for five months and the weather, mostly it was in Utah and the weather in Utah is outrageously changeable and famously so. Um, so, but there were scenes we never had the weather that was in the script uh, on the days we were shooting. But there's, for example, there's a, a, uh, a cemetery scene, a, a, uh, and it's in the rain. It was raining that day and they have these black umbrellas out there and the mood shifted so dramatically. It was written to be a sunny day. And here is this funeral taking place in dramatic rain with those Hitchcockian black umbrellas over everybody's shoulder and uh, things like that. The, the very first shots we did in the stand were of the four travelers making their way across the country. And it had been wintertime. And so we had flows of ice and snow that made for such dramatic, vast open shots of the mountains and, and long lens uh, depictions of our characters walking through the great unknown toward the mountains and all that. Um, you know, a particular happy accident we had is just a shot in Psycho 4. We're shooting the scene outside the Bates house 
And I look over the Bates Motel sign and there's a beautiful moon right over it. And I had one of the cameramen run over and grab that shot. Yes, I could have done it in effects, but here it was and the veracity of the shot is just beautiful. Um, I've mentioned when we were shooting the stand, how we did the topiary scene and there was no snow and we had to make snow and it only reached part way up the, uh, the hotel um, and it was skimpy and shitty. And that night there was a tremendous snowfall in an area, they built the hotel there because it's a snow shadow where snow doesn't fall regularly, but it blanketed it in snow that night wow. and the next wow. day the next day we went out and completely reshot the scene and it it was a very happy accident <laughs> i uh you know it's funny i think happy accidents don't just happen in uh uh production i think sometimes we find them in post um, oh yeah i was uh you know i did a, a couple of years ago a short film for eli roth's crypt tv a uh, little valentine's day uh, project for them and uh you know on a on a very shoestring budget of twenty five hundred dollars and um <clears throat> we uh got a very disappointing note in post-production which was they wanted to show the monster at the top of the video um and uh so we we you know my editor kind of brilliantly found a piece of where the slate had been uh, where we were we were slating a shot, which is when you you know say the what scene and shot you're doing, and they clap the clapper board, and uh, that's called slate. And uh, right before that had happened, there was a really extreme close up of the uh, killer's mask, and we were able to take that little piece, put it at the front of the short. The studio was happy, and you know we got to keep most of him shrouded in darkness. While uh, while they got you know their little opener that they wanted, and you um, had your launch of dread, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, happy accidents. I, I think I think their movies are made of them. Uh, Absolutely, is, is the moral of the story. All right, T D E Pero asks: As a director, you're juggling different personalities on set, from crew to cast. What's it like having to wear multiple hats to balance all those personalities during a shoot? That's the job. You know, you are part uh, psychologist. Um, you find out how to get the best work out of people. I mean, in all the jobs, like you're talking about, members of the crew or the cast, but even within the cast themselves, every one of them works in a different way. And you have to find that out really quickly. You know, whether somebody encourages input, um, if they feel confident that they can do it on their own uh, and don't need or want input, you still have to give it, but you find out a way to make it palatable to them uh, because it is a team. Everybody works together. It's give and take everywhere, but only one person, the director, can have the whole project in mind from beginning to end. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a joke that actors uh, talk about a script. They go, okay, bullshit, 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 my line, my line, bullshit, bullshit, <laughs> my line, my line. Um, there's a little bit of truth to that or we wouldn't be laughing about it. Mm -hmm. um, so the director has to be psychologist, psychiatrist, 
to everyone. Uh, you know, it's in a way it's a father figure, but it's more collaborative than that. Um, and it really is learning how people like to work or how people give their best work, whether they're cognizant of it or not. Figuring out who runs out of steam fast, you know, when you're doing your coverage and you want to, you know, who needs to do their first takes. They're fresh on their first takes and they run out of steam. You want to cover them first and save the actors who take a while to ramp up to give their best performance, save their coverage until later. It's really an amazing amount of hats that you have to juggle. And uh, that's why the job isn't for everyone, even though I think a lot of people think it is initially. Uh, and that's why I think, you know, we've, we've recommended before, but trying your hand on a short film can show you if you really do like that uh, or not. You know, I had uh, lunch with a friend of mine who's a writer uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, he had tried his hand at directing a short and he realized I don't like directing. I like writing. And, and I thought that was such a mature uh, thing for him to come to realize and, and accept about himself. Well, you know, writing is, is very solitary and you uh, command your own hours. When you're directing, you've got a block of time uh, every single day that's finite and you have a train that you have to push up the mountain. And, uh, it, you know, it's a lot of hard work, long hours, and the primary job of the director is being able to communicate. You have to be someone who can put into words and action uh, what's on the page. And you have to share that vision with every single member of the cast and crew so that they're all on the same page. And, and that's a very dis different discipline than sitting down in front of a keyboard. Absolutely. And you know what a good director needs, Mick, is fuel which is why Galen asks, what's your go-to snack while on set? <laughs> <laughs> I don't snack much uh, when I'm shooting. Uh, it's too easy to sit down in a director's chair. I remember shooting a pilot called Lost in Oz in Australia. And they would bring in between meals of fried sandwiches, you know, oh gosh. cheese and ham and all kinds of stuff. And, and I would eat it because it was served to me. Right. And, you know, I think right. I gained 10 pounds <laughs> shooting that pilot. But yeah, I was going to say, usually when you're directing, you barely have time to go graze at the snack table. It's, that's, that's much easier when you're writing or producing, I think. <laughs> yes, well, producers are addicted to the craft service table. But uh, <laughs> as a director, you know, I'm, I'm usually busy and I don't really like to eat between the meals. Um, but trail mix is probably the one thing I will indulge in. It's a good one to keep your energy up to. Yeah. Um, all right. Gary asks, at the end of Nightmare Cinema, we are led to believe that Riley was allowed to leave alive, but we later see Riley's film canister placed on a shelf. Was the projectionist messing with Riley to scare him even more? Do you really want an answer to that? I mean... <laughs> I feel it's like supposed to be ethereal. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a film that he's going to show Riley later? Mm -hmm. um, it's not, but uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I wanted it to be open to interpretation, uh, sure. but uh, it's also meant in this case, he's the only survivor. So let's consider it a cautionary tale, shall we? 
I like that. Uh, and I feel like actually, you know, I can confirm that was kind of the intention. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Right. Producer Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we had to, we had to, you do have to talk through these things when you're developing the script. And I, we went through lots of conversations with our financiers about the ending of this movie and what it oh, meant and et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was always the idea was that, that Riley's was a cautionary tale. Um, yep. and, and, uh, I've always, I've always liked that explanation. So, all right. Silver Shamrock asks, I think your idea of having directors from different countries direct segments of a horror anthology is great. So I'll ask about my country. Any Spanish director you'd pick for a project like that if you could get anyone? There are a ton. I mean, there's been so much great genre uh, material to come out of Spain. Probably top of the list would be Alex de la Iglesia, who's done tons and tons of movies, but he also created and wrote it and directed all of the episodes of 30 Coins, which you can watch on HBO Max. Not many people mm -hmm. know about it. It is in Spanish. It's one of the best TV series I've ever seen. It's really a work of true art and genius. It is grotesque. It is sexy. It has a sense of humor. But it's definitely It'll change how you look at cows. <laughs> yes, <But laughs> it, it, it's a great show. Um, Juan Carlos Medina is someone I met at a festival who did oh, yeah. a, a film sure. called Painless that is just terrific, as well as doing, you know, what's the Showtime, the great Showtime show that has Frankenstein's monster, uh, Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful, he, he did several of those. Um, a very talented guy, um, Alejandro uh, Amenabar, uh, who did The Others. Great. Oh, great. Yeah, sure. Really great. Um, Jaime Belaguero, who did Wreck. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's just a ton of really excellent Spanish directors. And I've, I've been lucky enough to go to festivals in Spain on numerous occasions. And the, the talent there is really robust. Absolutely. Uh, so, heck, it sounds like we could do a whole uh, anthology just with uh, Spanish filmmakers. So maybe some, to something <laughs> to file away for the future. Yeah. Um, speaking of anthologies, Miles asks, Mick, you directed episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt, Amazing Stories. Were you ever approached for Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, or Friday the 13th series? If not, would you have ever wanted to direct one of those series? I was not. And um, Tales from the Dark Side and Monsters were produced by um, one of the producers of The Stand. And, you know, those shows were done on a very, very, very tiny schedule and budget. And by that time, I was in the Directors Guild. I could never have worked on one of those shows. Um, however, uh, Friday the 13th, was something entirely different. Um, Tommy McLaughlin, one of my dearest friends, uh, became showrunner on that series. And even David Cronenberg directed an episode of that. The production values were great. I actually got my DP, Rodney Charters, who shot uh, Psycho 4 and Sleepwalkers for me. He was the DP of all of the episodes of the Friday the 13th series. Oh, wow. Huh. So I would love to have done an episode of that. I don't feel I missed anything by not doing Tales from the Dark Side 
or monsters. I enjoyed watching them, but I think that would have been a more pleasant experience than from what I heard about making them. Well, there you have it. All right. And our final question for today, Nathan asks, when you write the intro to the postmortem podcast before introducing your guest, do you show them the intro beforehand or do they hear it for the first time as you're saying it? Secondly, are you nervous about their reaction to it? Uh, They never see it before I read the intro. Uh, but I'm not nervous about it because we want postmortem to be a place people want to come and talk. We, it's my job and, and my philosophy that we want to appreciate the guests who we have here. And they're here because they have done work that fascinates us, that you know, we find their work interesting. We want them to enjoy the conversation. I want them to know what a safe place this is for them to talk about things. And, and we get people to open up because of that in ways that, that I, I've never heard them do before in a lot of cases. And so I don't ever want to insult anyone and I never would. Uh, I don't want to put anyone off with my introductions, but the introductions, um, are usually about a specific topic. Sometimes they tie into the guest, sometimes they don't. But whenever it does tie into the guest, I want it to be in a positive way, in a way that encourages them to want to have a conversation with us. Uh, Having been an objective observer and seen almost every single one of these uh, be read with the guest present, um, they're almost always received well. And, and, uh, you know, I think mix introductions are one of the the highlights of postmortem. In fact, we were even just talking about the last one this week and and kind of relating it to some modern horror uh, movies that were, you know, are out right now. And, uh, you know, I think that, I think that our, our, our guests are just as enraptured as we are when we hear them. And, uh, you know, and Mick always says such wonderful things uh, about the guests as he transitions into them that, I think almost always they can't help but use that sometimes as a, a jumping point into the conversation. They have, sometimes they want to go back to the last thing you said, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, the other thing I think is very impressive too is uh, I would say, you know, eight out of 10 times, Mick will nail it in one take, uh, you know, and, and the other two out of 10 times uh, are, are, engineer chris price gives him a hand but that's but, why chris uh, is here yeah that's why chris is my, here. my fallibility <laughs> but uh but yeah i know it's it's very impressive how much of uh these very eloquent um intros he, he can get through without screwing up i think i would i would fumble the ball almost every time so oh, gosh thank you Joe. <laughs> that's why you're the host all right <laughs> so among other reasons all right mick um you know, thank you again for another wonderful uh, postmortem. Ask Mick anything. Thank you, Joe. And uh, I'm, you know, you're gonna hate me, but happy birthday. And uh, <laughs> thank you, Joe. And uh, we'll 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 see you next time. If you want to send uh, questions to us, you can send them to uh, Mick Garris PM on Instagram and Twitter, uh, or you can send them to me at Joe Russo tweets or at Joe Russo Graham on Instagram and Twitter, respectively. All right. Thanks, Joe. And thanks, everybody, for your questions. And we'll see you again soon. 
Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.